Hello, belabored listeners. Welcome to episode 26 of Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. I am back, as I promised I would be. This week I have with me as our guest co-host, Laura Clausen, who is Daily Coast's labor editor, who has been a guest on our podcast here before and who co-hosted our launch party way back in the day. So, Laura, thank you for joining me. Longtime listeners know that we always start out with a little bit of a news roundup, um, and sometimes we try really hard not to depress you too much in the beginning before moving on to cheerful topics like government shutdown. Laura, what's something that you've been following this week? Well, this one isn't the most cheerful, but I can put maybe a little bit of a happy spin on it. Okay. A factory fire at a garment factory in Bangladesh killed 10 people. Not happy. Not happy. On the other hand, we can think that thanks to even worse disasters like the Rana Plaza collapse and the Tazreen factory fire back almost a year ago, it's now getting a little bit more attention than just 10 garment workers dying half a world away would have gotten a year ago. And there is some continuing pressure for change both in Bangladesh and in the countries that get their garments made there. So... Unfortunately, American companies are still not signing on to an actual binding, independent kind of safety agreement, but a lot of European companies have, and we do see this attention that maybe we're learning to care a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I hope we're learning to care a little bit. Speaking of care, longtime listeners will know that I write a lot about our local New York State Nurses Association and their ongoing fight to keep open well, to keep up in several hospitals in across New York City and departments at several hospitals in across New York City from the Bronx to Far Rockaway. This week, I visited the Long Island College Hospital again for the first time since the ridiculous security crackdown that came in this summer when SUNY Downstate, which operates the hospital, was in deep trying to close it illegally mode. As I mentioned before, there are two judges' rulings that are keeping the hospital open for now. And it was it was nice to see it open. I walked through the emergency room. There were patients being seen. Almost all the beds were full. The nurses were doing their jobs, which they're very happy to do. But there are plenty of other departments that are empty that have a skeletal staff where people are still being pushed down on administrative leave, where workers are staff that is organized with NISNA, staff that is organized with 1199, have pretty good job protections. And actually, ironically, it's the doctors who one would presume have more power in the hospital. They're getting the short end of the stick because they don't have an organization to support them. Interesting side note. And so the nurses particularly are still fighting. They are now circulating petitions calling on Governor Cuomo, who has been notoriously silent through this whole thing, other than proposing that maybe we should have for-profit hospitals in New York, which is one of the few states that doesn't. And they're calling on Cuomo to support finding a new operator that will run Long Island College Hospital as a full-service hospital in that neighborhood, taking care of the needs of the community. So I will, of course, keep you updated on this for now. It's nice to see that the hospital's still open. People are working. I have heard that they're going to reopen for surgery on October 14th. That's not entirely sure yet because things keep changing over there. But for now, there are patients in the ER, there are patients in the ICU, there are patients receiving cardiac procedures. It is a functioning hospital, and I've heard it's got some of the shortest ER wait times in Brooklyn. Well, here's another piece of bad news. I'm sorry, that seems to be my role today. On October 31st, the 
bump in food stamp benefits that the stimulus provided will expire. And that's coming at a time when we know House Republicans are trying their damnedest to slash food stamps much more deeply. So there's no chance, no chance that the added benefits that the stimulus included are going to be replaced. So basically what that means is a whole lot of families who will probably have enough to eat kind of, sort of, but forget about fruits or vegetables or anything Mm -hmm. healthy. (sighs) All right, I've got a little bit of good news. I've actually got some pretty exciting good news because it's labor organizing in the South, which people say can't be done an awful lot, but it's not completely hopeless. As Teamster Local 728 in Georgia has proved once again, um, they have won with 400 sanitation workers in DeKalb County, which is part of Atlanta and some of Atlanta's suburbs, an ordinance passed by the county commissioners that gives the county employees the right to join a union, which, of course, Georgia is a right-to-work state, or as we call it, a no-rights-at-work state. Public employees have no collective bargaining rights whatsoever. And so these workers had to not only organize in a very hostile environment like, well, most other workers, but they actually had to manage to change the law. So they actually had to pressure the county commission to pass this law that not only affects these 400 workers that are now going to be Teamster members, but 4,000 other county workers who are eligible also to now join unions. The organizers at 728 told me that this has been something like 40 years in the making with these workers that they've been trying to join unions since, you know, the civil rights movement was trying to organize mostly black sanitation workers. That they really had to organize in the workplace, come up with creative strategies to act like a union when they did not have any legal right to a union, and that they will still have to do that going forward because there's not a whole lot of protections for their rights. So against almost impossible structures that usually inhibit almost all organizing, they won and they won a victory that goes beyond just this one campaign. So, congratulations. And on that cheery note, we're going to go back to really depressing topics because, well, the government's still shut down. That means federal workers are still locked out of their jobs. That means... What else does it mean right now, Laura? Well, it means that funding for all sorts of fun things like nutrition assistance for low-income women, uh, the WIC program, Women, Infants, and Children, is either running out or has run out, depending. Kids have been kicked out of Head Start programs, which means that Head Start teachers are out of work, at least temporarily. Mm -hmm. And those children's parents also are screwed if they need to work themselves. I mean... If your kid is in Head Start, you probably don't have enough money to be paying for childcare other than that. In the kind of good news that's bad news, a philanthropist has stepped in with millions of dollars to help keep some Head Start programs open. But, of course, as Sarah was pointing out earlier today, that tends to get used as a rationale for cutting more. Look, philanthropy's doing it. Mm -hmm. The government doesn't need to do it. Right, the private sector will step in and it will do all the things and we don't actually need to do anything because those people can do that right up until those billionaires decide that there's a better use of their money. Exactly. And, you know, education and little things like that come to be seen as gifts and charity, not Mm -hmm. the right that people should have. 
Right. And once those billionaires start to give that money to that education program, then they start to think that they get to tell us how our kids should be educated. Right. Already think that. We see that all the time with billionaires who want to get involved with education, as I'm sure many of our listeners know. And also, because we're all up on the impending disasters here at Belabored, the debt ceiling. So, I mean, I just thought of this in the course of thinking about billionaires losing money, because that's one of my favorite topics, Um, and thinking about if we default on the national debt and this kicks off a financial crisis that is as bad as or worse than the one we saw in 2008, like many people are predicting it will be, and billionaires even lose some money, then oops, where'd all that private sector funding go? Then we're doubly screwed. But it's okay, because some Republican congressmen say there's nothing wrong with, and they are mostly men, they say there's nothing wrong with going through the debt ceiling, right? Absolutely. You know, the other thing that, that I think is sort of odd as we approach the debt limit and possible default is that it seems like globally kind of financial types, international bankers Mm -hmm. are freaking out about it more than American bankers. And I don't know if that's because American bankers believe that they're going to be able to muscle Republicans into not defaulting. Yeah. Or if it's because American bankers are, as we have so many times seen them to be, not as smart as they think they are. Yeah, there's sort of two ways that the story is going on that, right? We were both reading earlier an interview by former Belabored co-host Josh Idelson over at Salon with friend of the podcast and future guest, I'm sure, Doug Henwood, talking about the sort of bond market reactions and, you know, global market reactions to the possibility of U.S. default, which is terrible. I will link this interview on the Descent website. And Doug was talking about the way that a certain group of these Republicans who were the sort of debt ceiling denialists, I guess, they're probably also climate denialists, too. So, you know, and how these people are sort of disconnected from the banker elite, we should say. But then on the other hand, you've got these massive big money funded groups like Fix the Debt, like this, like Kick the Can or whatever the heck it is that's trying to purport itself as like young people caring about deficits that are seizing on this whole moment to really, really push the grand bargain. And of course, grand bargain always means that working people get screwed, that our Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and any other vestiges of the New Deal get slashed. So... Yeah. Right. And and I think that this is a particular moment of desperation to slash some of that stuff because mm-hmm. the exchanges for the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare have opened. So as you have the possibility of health care getting expanded in however mm-hmm. problematic and, you know, through private insurance away, it's especially important to them to chip away at what they can to say that what we already have isn't working because Mm -hmm. the more things that you add on that are working, the weaker their position becomes. Right. Yeah. Side note, I've noticed, I don't know if you've noticed this, the subway is absolutely full. And actually, my boyfriend, Peter Fraze, was the one who pointed this out. The subways are actually full of ads for health insurance now, which I'm sure is timed with the rollout of Obamacare. But in any case, that when you talk about any sort of expansion to the social safety net, which the ACA certainly is, right? The Medicaid expansion, 
much as it's a problematic expansion of a social safety net to say that we're, you know, providing healthcare to people by requiring them to buy private insurance, there is the expansion of bedrock safety net programs like Medicaid in this as well. And that's they're terrified. Right. You know, people are sort of like, well, this is the point all along. And I'm like, well, was anybody did anybody doubt that this was the point all along? I mean, we know that this has been their goal for a very long time, right? That this is... And I've got this wonderful book that I'm about to start reading that I will maybe see if I can get the author to join me on a future podcast called Invisible Hands by Kim Phillips Fine, and it's about the businessman's crusade against the New Deal. Laura, have you read this book? I have not. Anyway, it's, it's on my desk for the next thing to start because I think right now at this moment I need to read it. This has been a fight that big business has been fighting since any of these protections went into effect. I mean, they've been fighting unions since we got the NLRA. They've been fighting Social Security since we got it. They've been fighting Medicare since we got it. Right. And now they have this kind of group of allies in that fight that they didn't quite expect to gain a life of its own and power in the way that it has in the Tea Party the business alliance with the Tea Party could turn around and bite the business world in the butt if yeah. we go into default. So it's a really kind of unstable, who knows what's going on, and it's really all being fought out on the right because, like it or not, and I don't like it, obviously, right now a few far, 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 far right extremists in the House have the ability to kind of throw the entire nation into chaos. Yeah, and it's interesting, going back to sort of the beginning of these Tea Party-identified politicians rise to power, the first thing we saw them do was go after unions, right? The first thing we saw Scott Walker and John Kasich, and even Chris Christie, because Chris Christie was really the first Tea Party politician, right? Because New Jersey is on a different election cycle, so New Jersey is having its election, which will probably sigh, re-elect Chris Christie very shortly. We always saw them going after unions, right? Chris Christie is not a the sort of Southern ideologue that a lot of these Tea Party politicians are, but his first target was squarely the teachers' unions. Remember him calling the teachers' unions thugs? Right. And he brought that kind of anger and that fake populism that mm-hmm. we've seen be so big. Yeah, these connections between the attacks on unions, the attacks on Social Security, which is you know, theoretically a benefit for everybody, although not really. There are plenty of workers who don't actually have access to Social Security. We think of these as maybe separate in a way that I don't think we should. I mean, I think in general we're seeing this campaign to weaken everything that gives workers some stability and some promise that they will be protected from disaster. And if you're not protected from disaster by Social Security, by whatever safety net we might have, then you're that much more vulnerable to your employer. You have to take what they give. And I really think that's what a lot of we see in education these days is about kind of teaching some kids to just sit and be quiescent and take tests Mm -hmm. and obey while the kids of the elite get sort of creative, don't teach to the test learn to think for yourself education. You know, I was actually just reading a wonderful piece that I will also put a link to, written by Jean Anion, who was a professor at the CUNY Grad Center that I spoke to for a piece last year on the Seattle 
teachers test rebellion who passed away recently and which is she was a great scholar of education and social class and yeah she did a study in different schools of different class levels and looked at what the kids were being taught i think that's a really important point to make we were talking about this last week with bryce and and maria saying you know okay we should put forward some demands and bryce wrote a piece actually at the nation this week with a sort of list of demands and i would love to see that one thing that gave me a tiny bit of hope this week was that after resisting heavily Obama announced that he is nominating Janet Yellen to run the Federal Reserve. And this, of course, came about because the grassroots said, Larry Summers, you've got to be kidding me. And more importantly, maybe, or just working together with the grassroots in some interesting ways, we saw a group of senators say, Larry Summers, you've got to be kidding me. This letter circulated by Sherrod Brown that was signed by notably Elizabeth Warren um, and signed by a whole bunch of people. Right. It was really, it gained serious traction in the yeah. Senate. So. And specifically on the banking committee right. in the Senate. Yeah, that Obama was forced to stand there today and pretend that this was the person he wanted to nominate all along, while there's a picture of her going around with the biggest grin ever that I love. It's worth saying that, you know, Janet Yellen comes from the Clinton administration. She's not like a far leftist. She is somebody who possibly cares a little bit about the full employment mandate of the Federal Reserve that we forget about a whole lot. Right. So in that sense, she is going to be better. And and certainly anyone would be better than Larry Summers, Mm. the smartest man in the room who is the wrongest all the time (laughs) at every chance he gets. I think another interesting thing about this, as you say, there was this moment where the progressive grassroots and senators kind of got together and said, no, I really like to look back at the moment when the right was up in arms about Susan Rice, Mm -hmm. that she might be nominated for secretary of state. And the first moment when I felt pretty comfortable that Obama was not going to nominate Larry Summers was when he started going out and in this really peeved, angry way, defending <laughs> Larry Summers in exactly, in exactly the way that he had defended Susan Rice against right-wing attacks. And mm-hmm. I just thought, this is what he does when he's not getting his way. He makes sure he publicly defends the person before he gets them to withdraw their nomination. Yeah. And so just seeing for once the left to be able to pressure yeah. the Obama administration in a way that the right has been much more successful at yeah. was really something exciting. Yeah, and it makes me think about that idea of having some demands. Is worth pointing out, right, that we have seen people circulate similar letters refusing to cut Social Security. There is the um, Alan Grayson and Mark Takano circulating a letter asking House progressives to sign on to refuse to cut Social Security, refuse to sign up for this chain CPI business, which is completely terrible. And so we are seeing a little bit of that coming from the left. And we're seeing also, we've seen, you know, Elizabeth Warren, we've seen Sherrod Brown, we've seen Bernie Sanders, obviously, because Bernie Sanders is always doing this. Putting forward Kirsten Gillibrand's proposal that I wrote about that is up this week and in these times, people are putting forward progressive proposals that actually would be good for working people. I would love to see somebody tie some of that to this grand bargaineering that is going around. 
that would be very nice. And when we think about the bargain, here's another little bit of cheer to think about. Um, in shutdown negotiations, maybe default negotiations, I'm not sure. Oh, God. But Harry Reid went to the Obama administration and said, do not let Joe Biden ne- negotiate this stuff for us. He has given it away in the past, I guess, on the sequester, you oh, know, yeah. when that was going to be postponed, et cetera, et cetera. Harry Reid and the rest of the Democratic caucus in the Senate felt like Joe Biden had not been a great negotiator and Joe Biden has not been involved in these negotiations. Yeah. And Democrats have held firm, relatively speaking. <laughs> you know, we hold firm at sequester levels that we that we don't want. But. I know, and that's the hardest thing about this. And this is a point that Doug Henwood made in that aforementioned interview the Democrats are sort of the predictable austerity party in a lot of ways, right? That they are in many ways less scary to Wall Street because they're not going to sort of go off the deep end and, you know, demand that we, you know, something, something don't have a government unless we, you know, I don't know. for everyone. Right, exactly. And that they've been willing, that Obama has been willing repeatedly to float the idea of chain CPI, right? He has said that he prefers it. I mean, I don't, that's taken out of context, so it's not fair to say what he prefers it to. I don't know if he necessarily prefers it to the status quo, but he well might. I, You know, I think that this has been said a million times about him, and I, I sort of think it's true that he values the image of himself as the negotiator and as somebody who is going to settle these issues. And it's so important to say this is a fight that's been going on since the 30s. People have been trying to dismantle these things since they existed. They are not going to give up with some small cuts. Right. And I I do think that, you know, we're seeing some admissions from the Obama administration that maybe they bargained a little too much in 2011, Mm -hmm. to which the rest of the world says, think. (laughs) But at least if they believe it this time, maybe, maybe we will see a better outcome. On that cheery note, I do want to say that I like this idea of talking about demands that we would like to see people making. On Bryce's piece, she suggested that people use the hashtag DemDemands. I would love to hear what kind of demands our labor listeners are thinking about. I immediately suggested the Employee Free Choice Act, of course, the Transgender Inclusive Employment Non-Discrimination Act. There are many, many other wonderful ideas. I'm a fan of Kirsten Gillibrand's new proposal for paid family leave. We'd love to hear some worker-friendly proposals from our listeners that, you know, if Democrats suddenly sprout a spine and wanted to make some demands, we might hear. This is the part of the show where I am not as good as Josh at saying, arg, I wish I'd written that. So, Laura... Moving on from depressing topics, maybe. What filled you with envy this week? All right, so I'm sort of cheating here because I have two pieces in mind, but I'm going to make the argument that they belong together for a reason a little more complicated than by the same guy. So both articles are by Ken Ward Jr. of the Charleston Gazette in West Virginia. In the first, Closing the Door, Why West Virginia Coal Mines Aren't Safer, He writes about a meeting of the West Virginia Board of Coal Mine Health and Safety at which they were discussing whether to require proximity detection systems in mines. Proximity detection devices protect underground miners from being crushed by machinery by just telling the machine, hey, there's a guy there, don't run him over. So at this meeting, 
a coal miner's widow named Caitlin O'Dell showed up to argue in favor of proximity detection systems, which might have saved her husband's life. Unfortunately, the board deadlocked because, Ward explains, it's composed of three industry representatives and three labor representatives, which means that it deadlocks on basically everything important. So West Virginia won't be requiring proximity detection systems, which are something that have been considered at the federal level and are, of course, held up in all sorts of ways at the federal level, even though coal mining companies actually have them and they work, but they'd cost money to put in. Can't have that. Right. So Ward's second piece that I want to highlight asked if the fact that three miners were killed on three consecutive days, October 4th through 6th, could be related to the government shutdown that we've been discussing. So while there are more safety inspections going on in mines than in other workplaces under the shutdown, there has been disruption of how many inspections, how predictable they are, which mines are being inspected. And Ward points to reasons to believe that could be seriously impacting mine safety. Shocking thought, but one that has been rejected by, you know, the Wall Street Journal quoting the mining industry. (laughs) Shocking. Right. So the reason I'm putting these two pieces together isn't just because it's the same reporter on coal mining, but because of what that enables him to add to these pieces. Because Ken Ward is on this beat all the time, looking at it from multiple angles, he can bring context and history to his reporting that even a reporter who pays a relatively large amount of attention to coal mining than, you know, compared to most other reporters could possibly do. He's not just in the room when Caitlin O'Dell shows up bringing a human element. He knows the dynamics on that board and he can really offer context. And it's his work is so impressive as an investment in local reporting of a kind that hasn't really been thriving in today's media environment. And it's especially impressive that he so often focuses on workers' issues with such nuance. I am also talking about a piece today by a veteran labor beat reporter. Um, Of course, it's Stephen Greenhouse at the New York Times, who has the perhaps less enviable job of being the labor reporter at the nation's paper of record and thus has to basically cover everything. But he's got an excellent piece up right now at the Times about Nissan or rather about the UAW organizing at Nissan plants in Mississippi. And to a lesser extent, his piece is about the organizing in Tennessee. The organizing in Tennessee has its own very, very interesting aspects to it. But in Mississippi, really in the Deep South, is where he's focused his pieces, you know, three pages on the web. It's it's a datelined Canton, Mississippi. It is the kind of reported piece that so few of us get to do that I'm jealous but also, as I was saying about organizing the South earlier, it's the sort of white whale of U.S. labor. It's certainly the white whale of the UAW. As more foreign auto plants opened up in the South, we've seen, of course, the jobs moving away from Detroit, from the old unionized big three. And we've seen what that's done in turn to the bargaining power that the UAW had at the big three. So as Greenhouse points out in this piece, this is sort of a life or death campaign. If the UAW does not manage to organize some of these workplaces, then what can it do? He talks to workers, he talks to bosses, because the New York Times makes you do things like that. 
Of course, I deeply hope that this campaign succeeds because I think that workers have the right to have unions, but also that I want to see success in the South because when we're talking about the Tea Party and talking about these politicians who are, you know, driving us off of a cliff currently, there's this tendency for a lot of people, especially people who live in New York or D.C. like we do, to sort of write off the South as this completely backward, useless region that has just, you know, we should just let it secede or let it go back to the Dark Ages or whatever. And that leaves out millions of working class people who are just trying to get by who really could use some help and some support and also some elected officials who aren't determined to destroy the last shreds of the social safety net. So I like to see hopeful stories like this coming out of the South because, hey, like workers in the South are not fundamentally different than workers in Detroit. They also deserve rights at work. So on that cheerful note, I'm full of cheerful notes today. Hopefully next week when we return to you, there will not be a shutdown or a debt default or any of these horrible things to talk about. And we can return to day-to-day labor issues. Here's hoping. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Eight, twenty-five, hell no, we can't go. Society has its limits.